This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. We have a very big show for you tonight. George Galloway back in the House of Commons. Rishi Sunak has just given a somewhat bizarre speech. <laughs> we will get you uh, some key moments from that coming up. Um, and we're also going to talk to Mehdi Hassan. Um, Aaron, what a show we have ahead of us. We have a great show, Michael, and I wouldn't rather do it with anybody else than at MJS Walker. Michael J.S. Walker, my apologies. I slept Michael J.S. zero hours. You slept zero hours. You were doing all-night election coverage, weren't you, Aaron? It was. Very fun. But it means I'm on top of the facts for our audience this evening. Yeah, even if your brain isn't necessarily running at full speed, the, 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 the amount of information you have absorbed over the past 24 hours should make up for that. Let's get on to that first story. George Galloway has achieved a stomping victory in the Rochdale by-election, winning 40% of the vote. Keir Starmer, this is for Gaza. You have paid, and you will pay, a high price for the role that you have played in enabling, encouraging, and covering for the catastrophe presently going on in occupied Palestine in the Gaza Strip. Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are two cheeks of the same backside, and they both got well and truly spanked tonight here in Rochdale. There were some serious points being made there, of course, but I couldn't get out of my head um, that it looked like he was speaking at Willy Wonka land in Glasgow. Um, Galloway is no stranger to taking on the main parties and winning. In 2005, he stood against the Blairite Labour MP Una King in Bethnal Green and won. And in 2012, he won a by-election in Bradford West. Galloway has long been a vocal opponent of Britain's imperialist foreign policy in the Middle East. And Tony Blair kicked him out of the Labour Party in 2003 for encouraging British soldiers to refuse to fight in the Iraq war. All the seats um, that Galloway has won since then have had large Muslim populations. And Galloway has been clear that in this return to Parliament, he will again be focusing on British foreign policy. You spoke once about bumping into Tony Blair in the toilets of Parliament and saying something to his face. If that happens with Keir Starmer, what would you say to him? It was actually outside the toilet, outside uh, the toilet? in the library corridor, to be precise, and two weeks before the uh, Iraq war. And everything I warned him about came to pass. Tony Blair didn't take my advice, and Keir Starmer wouldn't either. But if I do bump into him, I'll definitely give him a piece of my mind. What would you say? I'd say that the course of action you have embarked upon in your, to quote him, unqualified support for Israel, without qualification, he said, uh, is going to lead your party to disaster. Your abandonment of traditional labor values, your embrace of neoliberal economics and imperialist politics abroad, uh, is going to be the death of your party, and it richly deserves it. So this is another big win for George Galloway. But should Labour really be worried? After all, this was um, previously a safe seat, but they didn't put up anyone, right? So there was a Labour candidate, but then after 
um, the, the nominations period had closed, they suspended him. You'll know the Labour candidate was supposed to be Azhar Ali, um, and he was suspended after a recording came to light where he suggested Israel intentionally allowed the October the 7th attacks to happen. On Radio 4, Labour's Ellie Reeves apologised to the people of Rochdale. We regret not standing uh, a candidate, not being able to stand a candidate in the Rochdale by-election. Uh, and uh, we apologise to the people of Rochdale uh, for that. Uh, if uh, Labour had stood, I don't believe that George Galloway would have uh, won. Our job now is to select a Labour candidate for the general election that we're uh, expecting this year, someone who can work uh, with all of the communities in Rochdale to rebuild trust. Azarelli's name was still on the ballot paper against Labour because your decision came too late. Um, he, and, and yet George Galloway won 10 times the number of votes that Azarelli did. And this issue, which was a, a central one, the issue of Gaza, did resonate with many people. Well, just, just a couple of things. Uh, in terms of Azar Ali, uh, the recording uh, where he uh, made completely unacceptable comments came to light after the close of nominations. Yes, I meant it was not possible to remove his name from the ballot paper. Uh, it, so of, of some course. people probably went into those booths thinking that he was the approved Labour candidate. That was how his name appeared. I mean, we ran no campaign uh, there in support of uh, Azar Ali and uh, he wasn't the, uh, the, the, the Labour candidate. And we regret that we weren't able to... To, to have a candidate. You know, it's unprecedented for uh, Labour not to run uh, a candidate in, uh, in a by-election, but it was the right decision because of those comments that were made. Let's get up the results from the by-election in full. So Galloway won comfortably with 40%. And also of note is local businessman and independent candidate David Tully. Um, he came second with 21%. So both the major parties' vote shares dropped considerably from the last election, the Conservatives received 12% and Labour's abandoned candidate came fourth with 8%. The Lib Dems were on 7 and Reform, interestingly, and performed worse than in 2019, falling two points to just 6%. Now, you might have thought the chaos would give them an opportunity to perform somewhat better. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Aaron, what I first want to know from you um, is this question about the Labour Party. So, as Ellie Reeves suggested, um, would you agree that if Labour had a, a candidate that had stood who they had backed until the actual election, um, would Galloway not have won? Michael, it's complete nonsense. What we've just seen <clears throat> is unprecedented. It's very unusual for somebody outside of a major party to win a by-election. Very unusual. George Galloway's done it twice now, once in Bradford, once um, this morning. It's very unusual. Uh, he did it getting more votes than Labour, the Lib Dems, the Tories and Reform combined. That is extraordinarily unusual. Labour almost lost their deposit. You know, they got 7% of the vote. And bear in mind, there would have been postal votes that were sent in weeks ago. Actually, some before even this whole Azhar Ali saga kicked off. So, you know, I think had had... There have been slightly more disadvantageous conditions for Labour, but they might even have lost their deposit. Now, bear in mind, this is meant to be a Labour-safe seat. Um, and I find it utterly extraordinary, hypocritical, duplicitous, but also funny that Labour people are going on the airwaves saying, well, we weren't standing somebody. You know, I was doing early morning TV with Paul Richards, perfectly charming, civilised man, 
um, who's an ex-Labour advisor, we weren't standing a candidate. You were standing a candidate. There was still literature going out every day in the constituency with this chap's name on it, Labour header. Uh, he was on the ballot, Labour. Everybody's associated with him with Labour for decades. There were conversations even of him being let back in if he won. There were pictures of him with um, local uh, party officials, not in Rochdale, but more broadly across uh, Lancashire um, and bureaucrats. We're not idiots. And this is the problem with, the both, uh, with both major parties. They think everyone are idiots. And the media also think everyone are idiots. And we've seen this repeatedly with Brexit, with Corbyn. They think everyone are idiots. And if you don't you know, agree with the, the default line set within the M25, set by a few thousand people, um, from both parties, then you're stupid. And what we got instead was an overwhelming, uh, overwhelming rejection of all the candidates, in particular Labour. I mean, Michael, I'll finish with this. The Tories are on the ropes. They're being destroyed nationally. Uh, reform got 6%, so that obviously bit into their polling too. They still got 12%. They almost got double Labour's vote in this constituency. And uh, Ellie Reeves has the temerity to go on the airway of saying, if we'd stood a candidate, we would have won. No, you were decisively rejected because of your party's position on Gaza. Just say it. Just say it. You could also say, well, it's a one-off. It's a, it's a, it's a by-election. It won't be repeated at a general election, although I think with the scale of Galloway's victory, that's not necessarily true. You could say all that. At least it's reasonable. It's plausible. This is just cope. Uh, misinformation. And I think most worrying of all is that it wasn't really effectively pushed back on by the BBC, by Sky, LBC, nobody. Nobody. Because just like the politicians, the media too, they think we're all idiots. The argument against that would be, so yes, I, it, I think even if Labour had stood, this is a by-election and George Galloway was standing sort of with a protest issue that people really do care about. So I don't think it is obvious that if Labour had stood a candidate, they would have won. I think, you know, the protest vote would be would have been strong, you know, even if Labour were standing. But you might say, you know, and I don't think it's unreasonable to say, Labour nationally are on 46% in the polls. You know, the Conservatives are on 20%. So it would be surprising, say, if the Labour Party were to start panicking about losing a by-election where they didn't even back the candidate. Right, there, there was no one campaigning for him. You said sort of literature was going through people's doors. I think it was, you know, there's you get to send out one bit of post, don't you, to sort of every every address. And they said, you know, they'd done that before the suspension happened. So it wasn't, you know, people weren't sort of thinking, oh, we need to go out and vote for for Labour here because Labour weren't telling them to to do that. So if you sort of compare the situation nationally and the sort of unique situation locally here, do you think you're maybe getting a bit sort of over the top, I suppose, when it comes to the problems this might pose for the Labour Party? No, I'm not saying this is typical of anything. I'm not saying this will be repeated across the country. It is in itself an extraordinary result, Michael. And I think that has to be underscored repeatedly. George Galloway won more votes than all the major parties put together. I, I, I can't recall any by-election ever like that. Maybe there was something, you know, immediately following the Second World War, but I, I cannot think of an example that is unprecedented. George Galloway, Michael, here's a stat for you. George Galloway has now represented four different parliamentary constituencies. One other MP has done that. Who is it? Uh, Enoch Powell. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. So now Galloway can call himself a Churchillian political figure. With a, with a smidgen of, of legitimacy. So it is an extraordinary result. Two things, quickly. Um, no, it shouldn't worry Labour at the moment, right? Maybe it will after local elections, maybe it will be repeated. Because what, let's say worst case scenario, 
Gaza um, allows a dozen, a dozen, which by the way is highly unlikely, a dozen independents to, to win seats at a general election. A dozen. Well, like you say, the Tories are presently polling between 20 and, and sort of, let's say, 27, uh, and Labour are on course for a major majority of maybe 100. So Labour have many things going right for them. SMP not doing so well, or they're pouring back with the SMP. Lib Dem's kind of underwhelming, right? The Tories in free fall, and they have one thing going badly, which is Gaza, and it's dividing a part of their base. I, I, it's, it's fair to say Gaza is a huge problem for them, but fortunately for Labour, everything else is going pretty well. And finally, it is a problem for Labour, but it's also not a problem that the Tories can exploit, which is a problem for the Tories as well. It's not that the Tories have some distinctive message on Gaza uh, that they can profit from. And in, you know, in, in contrast, 2005, which, by the way, saw uh, the Liberal Democrats win Rochdale on an anti-war vote. So the idea that this is all new, it's all Muslims. No, something similar happened 19 years ago. Um, you know, the Lib Dems can't profit from that either because, of course, they've still really just collapsed since 2010. Uh, they were previously an alliance of, you know, Tory swing voters and um, urban areas who were more progressive, um, BAME, LGBT, uh, student places. That, that coalition's gone, possibly forever. You know, they, they really are just sort of looking now at the South and the Southwest, um, you know, defected Tories, it seems to me. That seems to be the evidence of the last 18 months. We said just before we went live, the Prime Minister made a speech outside number 10. And it was a very unusual speech, I have to say. Um, and he did make reference to George Galloway. So here's what he said. In recent weeks and months, we have seen a shocking increase in extremist disruption and criminality. What started as protests on our streets has descended into intimidation, threats and planned acts of violence. Jewish children fearful to wear their school uniform, lest it reveal their identity. Muslim women abused in the street for the actions of a terrorist group they have no connection with. Now our democracy itself is a target. Council meetings and local events have been stormed. MPs do not feel safe in their homes. Long-standing parliamentary conventions have been upended because of safety concerns. And it is beyond alarming that last night the Rochdale by-election returned a candidate who dismisses the horror of what happened on October the 7th, who glorifies Hezbollah and is endorsed by Nick Griffin, the racist former leader of the BNP. Very, very cheap to sort of bring up that someone has been endorsed by someone else. Um, he did sort of, I said it was a somewhat bizarre speech. He's sort of trying to sort of say, we're, we're losing control of the streets and we're going to put our foot down and say, Britain is not racist. We're rejecting these divisive ideologies. Um, and then lots of smearing of protesters against a genocidal war. Um, as for what he actually announced, um, so this is from the BBC. Sunak says he has met with police leaders this week and made it clear that the public expectations of them is not to only manage, but to police protests. Um, and he says that this month the government will introduce a new framework for policing. And he also committed to redoubling support for the Prevent Programme and to act to prevent people entering the country who undermine this country. Um, he also says those living in Britain on visas who spread hate will lose their right to be here. Um, now, it's very ambiguous what his definition of hate is. He, called, he, he complained about an anti-Semitic trope um, being projected on the houses of, of commons. Now, I assume he's sort of referring to from the river to the sea, which, you know, as you'll know from this show, 
is not anti-Semitic. I also don't think that's what a trope means. So I, I think a trope is sort of like more a stereotype than from the river to the sea. So a trope would be if you say, oh, the Jews, they all control the media or Muslims are all violent or something like that. Those are tropes. Saying from the river to the sea is a geopolitical position, which, you know, even if you find it anti-Semitic, I don't think that's what a trope means. Anyway, Aaron, what did you make of that quite bizarre speech from Rishi Sunak, especially sort of done, you know, late on a Friday. Um, he, he feels that this by-election is so significant that he has to make this address to the nation. The guy's a, the guy's a loser. He's, he's lost. You know, he has lost. There's polling out today. Um, obviously, bad night for reform last night. Well, not that bad. They kept their deposit. Um, but they still polled nationally 14% um, this morning. I think that's their best ever. The Tories were on 20%. By the way, that's not going to be reflected in a general election, but I mean, that, that's a huge problem for you when there's a new political party eating into your terrain and they're six points behind you. And I think that's as much the reasoning behind what Sunak did as anything Galloway achieved. And I find it extraordinary, Michael. You know, we'll talk about this more later. Um, but how uh, politicians in the media can condemn the electorate. George Galloway won a stunning victory in Rochdale. You don't have to like everything about him. You can even disagree with his position on Israel-Palestine. But there's an objective fact. I'll repeat, he won more votes than all the major parties put together, plus reform, you know? And by the way, the person that came second was an independent candidate. I mean, what an indictment of our political system. And the response, of course, is basically, they, they're basically condemning the Rochdale electorate. We're saying he's evil, this malevolent actor, blah, 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 blah. He'll do nothing for Rochdale, blah, 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 blah. Well, you're basically calling the, the, the voters of Rochdale thick. That's what you're doing. I, I, oh, well, we should focus more on local issues again. We'll talk about that more later. What, y your candidate was going to do that, were they? Really? Rather than serve the, the interests of the 1% and, you know, tax-dodging uh, elites? Give me a break. Do me a favor. Um, so, look, I, I think Sunak is, is, is a goner. Um, and I think even if Labour have a bad general election at this point, they're looking at a majority of 60-70. The Tories, two polls out today, one in the low 20s, one in the mid-20s. Bear in mind, Michael, in 1997, the Tories got 31% of the vote, just under, I think something like 30.8%. Uh, John Major got 97. If they get that result, it will be good. That will be an accomplishment. Now, that's how bad things are for them right now. Their worst ever election was in 1906. I think they got 156 seats. Right now, they're going to do worse than that. So, you know, the media in uh, 2019, 2020, they love to say, Jeremy Corbyn, Labour's worst election since 1935. By percentage, it wasn't, but whatever. Okay, Rishi Sunak, the Tories' worst election result ever, ever. Uh, of course, it's not framed. It's not framed so badly because, of course, it's not. Look, it's not the left. Um, but he has to really try everything now. He's grasping at, at straws. Uh, but I, look, you can talk about the protests, and it's good. He mentioned Muslim women being abused in the street. That's very good. It's important that he said that. I mean, because you know, people like Reform and other actors on the right wouldn't do that. Um, but. This idea that you couch all of the stuff, including protests, alongside electoral results, I just find mind-boggling. Because, Michael, it boils down to this. They're telling people, look, if you, tell, if you care about Israel Gaza, you, you shouldn't be protesting. It's not legitimate to protest about it. That's, that's basically the under, undertones here, right? Don't protest. Well, if you don't want them to protest and you don't want them to vote about it at the ballot box, what do you want them to do? By the way, you can't even complain about it on the TV or on YouTube, right? People like me and you get um, cancelled and critiqued nonstop. What are you meant to do? Were well, you just only meant to have like internal thoughts about this? And then that's the, the limits of sort of legitimate action when it comes to Gaza, when we know more than 30,000 people have died. Probably, probably way more, by the way. Um, and look, British Muslims, yes, they care about the issue. Other people do as well, but British Muslims care about that issue to a great extent. 
They should, of course they should. Of course they should. But why wouldn't they? Right? I'm a British Iranian. If 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 uh, tens of thousands of people were being killed in Iran and the British government was helping, I'd be livid. I would vote for a candidate that tried to stop that. It's really not that hard to work out. But of course, whenever you have something going against the prevailing orthodoxy from the political media class, well, we have to make it, you know, Albert Einstein, you know, uh, subatomic particle physics. Uh, because of course, you know, the easy question and the easy answer, people care about Gaza. They voted for the person who made that a central issue. That's too complicated. That's too bad. We can't understand it. And if we can understand it, we're going to condemn it. We've got some super chats coming in. Andy Thompson says, Sunak sounded like a prelude to curfews and martial law being introduced before the general election. I mean, it did seem like a very sinister speech, I thought, especially, you know, given all of a sudden out in the dark, you know, it seemed like this is a national emergency. George Galloway has been elected. I'm in a seat. You might only have the seat for six months, but this is a national emergency. Um, the message from Rishi Sunak earlier in the day as well, he sort of called this one of the most divisive um, campaigns in, in recent history. And that word divisive has been used a lot in the mainstream media today. Now, this was Robert Rinder hosting Good Morning Britain. There are local issues. This is a a very poor constituency, 28% child poverty in that part of the country. You know, there are issues that affect each and every one of us, and especially those communities. And yet, the fact that he wins on this with a campaign to divide communities yeah. rather than dealing with local issues, which is the fundamental job of an MP, is something worth reflecting on. That was a very, very patronizing intervention, right? Part of a job part of an MP's job is to focus on local issues. But another part is to vote on issues that affect the whole nation or indeed the whole world. He's sort of saying that these are very poor people. Why are these poor people voting uh, because they care about another country? Why, why don't they vote because they want more food, right? This is terrible. This is divisive, right? I think if voters prioritize the welfare of people far away, well, good for them, right? Oh, they should be voting for their pockets. Why, right? So, so patronizing. And reports do suggest that that's exactly what did happen. People did vote because they cared about a genocidal war going on, um, you know, reasonably far away. So Anush Chakilian from the New Statesman visited Rochdale during the campaign and reported this. Galloway ran a predominantly pro-Palestinian campaign. His campaign literature and posters plastered all over the town were printed in the colours of the Palestinian flag. And he put a lot of work into meetings with local Muslim groups, including private women's meetings. Much of the talk at these events was about how Labour and the government were failing to call for an immediate ceasefire, neglecting Muslim voters and ignoring the plight of the Palestinians. These events were intense and visceral. There were tearful conversations about the murder of civilians at one I witnessed. The hopes of Galloway's rivals rested on Rochdalians putting bread and butter concerns first. Housing, notoriously poor in the town where a two-year-old boy died of exposure to mould. The high street and crime. But from what I saw, Gaza was a motivating issue for a significant and engaged part of the electorate. The constituency has a 30% Muslim population, but white British voters also mentioned it to me sympathetically. It had become the story of the campaign. Aaron, you sort of covered some of this in your, your, your previous answer, but I do think that clip in particular was so, so patronizing. This very wealthy guy on the television, TV host, Judge Rinder. I'm not sure, I'm not, I don't actually know what, how his character works, if he's an actual judge or how it works. But anyway, he's known as Judge Rinder, a bit like Judge Judy, I suppose. Um, and he's saying, this is a poor place. Why the hell are they voting because, of, because they care about foreign policy? That must be divisive. They must have been tricked, I suppose. Mm. Divisive. 
divisive. Isn't it divisive that this candidate got more votes than all the candidates from the major parties put together? So divisive. Actually, if you think about the, the word you would use, it's unifying. Okay. And by the way, on a large turnout, on, on almost just under 40%, 40%, which for by-elections is pretty good. Uh, Rochdale doesn't have a high turnout in general elections. So for Rochdale in a by-election, it's very good. Substantially higher than people were expecting. So he got basically 40% on 40%, which is really good in a, in a by-election. Um, and the person who came second was this uh, gentleman who was a, a local independent. So it's divisive. And, and by the way, you saw that word repeatedly, as you said, all morning. And it's almost like people had their takes ready and they were prepared for Galloway winning by 500 votes, 1,000 votes. That's what, and they would have said, here's the thing, Michael, they would have said precisely the same thing. Makes you think. Because it indicates they're not actually challenging the results, their assumptions. They're not trying to provide valuable information for their audience. If you're going to say the same thing regardless of whether George Galloway wins by one vote or 10,001 votes, I would say that actually you're not really informing people. And look, people engage with news media, and I know GMB is not news media, it's soft, soft media, but still, people engage with news media because they want to be informed, because it's valuable information, right? It might in, inform voter intention, it might inform um, just they want to be more knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about the state of the world. If you want to be low information, if you want to be uninformed, watch, watch big politics news media. Be uninformed because what you have is a cavalcade of people, like a conveyor belt, saying this was divisive. Autom automatons like Ellie Reeves, Ellie Ron. This was divisive. George Galloway is a bad man. The bad man won. I condemn him. I feel so sorry for the voters of Rochdale. How condescending! I feel so sorry for them. What if the Tory or Labour candidate won? What the, the streets were going to be paved with gold all of a sudden? They're not stupid. They aren't stupid. The electorate is incredibly sophisticated. They are not stupid. They know that, broadly speaking, locally, nothing will change. By the way, it's only a by-election. This will be probably contested again within six months. Nothing will change. But on this one issue, I can actually have real agency, and that's if I vote for George Galloway. And that's what happened. It's really not that complicated. But if you're Rob Reinder, of course, to deny that fact, to evade it, you have to sort of pretend, well, if they voted for a Labour candidate, if they voted for a Liberal Democrat, then maybe, you know, we'd have sure start come back, a housing boom, you know, presumably you'd have a climate transition, universal basic income, four-day week, what else? You know, so stupid, so seriously stupid. And finally, on, on, on this gentleman's class position, he's a barrister, Michael. I don't know if he's actually a judge, God knows. Very weird, like TV judges. He's a, he's a barrister. He comes from an affluent background. Just shut up. Like uh, this, uh, this, this contempt towards the electorate outside London is still happening. We thought it was over. It's still happening. And if you don't vote the way they want you to vote, they will castigate you. They'll call you a racist. They'll call you stupid. Uh, they'll say you were deceived. Anything but the fact, which is actually these people made an informed decision. Lots of people um, tuning in to tonight's show. Thank you for joining us. If you're new to our show, and um, we do this every weeknight from 6 p.m., so do make sure to come back. And of course, as you know, this is all only possible because of our support from you, our audience. A massive thanks to everyone who donates to us each and every month. If you want to support truthful, independent media, then head to navaramedia.com slash support and set up a monthly donation. Um, the link is in the description to this video. Now on to more George Galloway. The newly elected MP for Rochdale, George Galloway, is routinely described as both effective and divisive in equal measure. But who is he really? Well, 
As for the basics, Galloway was born in 1954 in Dundee. In 1981, he became the youngest ever chair of Scottish Labour. And in 1983, he became General Secretary of the international anti-poverty charity War on Want. Galloway was first elected a Labour MP in 1987 to a seat in Glasgow, where he remained a Labour MP until 2003. In that time, he was a vigorous campaigner against sanctions on Iraq following the first Gulf War, and controversially, he met Saddam Hussein in 1994. Galloway went on to become vice chair of the Stop the War campaign from 2001, but it was the events following an interview he gave in Abu Dhabi that got him kicked out of the Labour Party. In that interview, he said this, The wolves are Bush and Blair, not the soldiers. The soldiers are lions led by donkeys, sent to kill and be killed. That interview was controversial. He was called a traitor and by many in the British press. And he responded like this, As for being a traitor, the people who have betrayed this country are those who have sold it to a foreign power and who have been the miserable surrogates of a bigger power for reasons very few people in Britain can understand. Given that I believe this invasion is illegal, it follows that the only people fighting legally are the Iraqis who are defending their country. The best thing British troops can do is to refuse to obey illegal orders. Now, those statements seem entirely reasonable and were vindicated by history, but they were enough to get Galloway suspended from Labour for bringing the party into disrepute. That, however, did not stop him being an effective opponent of the Iraq war, and even his political foes admit he did so with unmatched eloquence, including in a 2005 hearing in the US Senate. Galloway here um, was defending himself against allegations that he profited from the Iraqi oil for food program. I've met Saddam Hussein exactly the same number of times as Donald Rumsfeld met him. The difference is Donald Rumsfeld met him to sell him guns and to give him maps the better to target those guns. I met him to try and bring about an end to sanctions, suffering, and war. And on the second of the two occasions, I met him to try and persuade him to allow Dr. Hans Blix and the United Nations weapons inspectors back into the country. And this uh, was the I gave my heart and soul to stop you committing the disaster that you did commit in invading Iraq. And I told the world that your case for the war was a pack of lies. Galloway's rhetorical flair was also used later that year against the essayist Christopher Hitchens. This war in which he glories, although I wish, how I wish he'd put on a tin hat and pick up a gun and go and fight himself. How I wish, how I wish to see that sight. This war in which he glories has cost the lives, according to those well-known Saddamist fronts, the Lancet and Johns Hopkins University, well in excess of a hundred thousand people's lives. And hundreds of thousands more have been maimed and wounded. And it was all for a pack of lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There was no link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. There was no link between Iraq and the atrocities on the 9th of September, on the 9-11 here in the United States. There was 
no welcome for the foreign armies that invaded Iraq. Hitchens said they would be greeted by flowers, but there are 2,000 young American boys lying in the ground now, testimony to the fact that they were welcomed by something else. And thousands and thousands more wounded, maimed, many of them in wheelchairs for the rest of their lives, testament to the folly of Hitchens and Bush and Cheney and the rest of the neocon gang that dragged your country into this disaster. So Galloway's career as a orator wasn't damaged by being kicked out of Labour, and neither um, was his career as an MP to some degree. In 2005, he caused a huge upset by defeating the Blairite Una King in Bethnal Green and Bow. Um, in that election, he stood for the newly formed Respect Party. And one of his first interviews on election night was with Jeremy Paxman. Mr Galloway, are you proud of having got rid of one of the very few black women in Parliament? What a preposterous question. I know it's very late in the night, but wouldn't you be better by starting by congratulating me for one of the most sensational election results in modern history. Are you proud of having got rid of one of the very few black women uh, in Parliament? I'm not, Jeremy, move on to your next question. Well, you're not answering that one. No, because I don't believe that people get elected because of the colour of their skin. I believe people get elected because of their record and because of their policies. So you, move on to your next question. Are you because proud? Because I've got a lot of people who want to speak to me. Uh, you if, you ask that, if you ask that question again, I'm going. I warn you now. Don't try and threaten me, Mr. Galloway, you're please. The you're the one who's trying to badger me. I'm not now, trying to badger you. I'm merely asking whether you're got, proud of having, having driven out of Parliament, one of the very few black women there, a woman you accused of having on her conscience the deaths of 100,000 people. Oh, well, there's no doubt about that one. If you haven't seen Brass Eye, um, I do recommend it. There is nothing more Chris Morris than... Um, when Jeremy Paxman said, are you threatening me, Mr. Galloway? I mean, he's speaking to you by video call, so I mean, he can't really be threatening you, like, you want to fight? Anyway, um, Galloway contested the 2010 general election in the neighbouring constituency of Poplar and Limehouse, but he was unsuccessful there. But in 2012, he returned to Parliament after winning a by-election in Bradford West. He lost that seat three years later after a very personal campaign against Labour's candidate, Naz Shah. When a circus comes into town, it makes a lot of noise and it gets everybody's attention. He's and doing that 60... now, though, isn't he? Well, no, because if you see the respect bus now, it goes round. Yesterday, it went past my office with two people on board. Madrasa, you're learning the Quran. Alhamdulillah. It's not clear how things got so personal between Naz Shah and George Galloway, but it first came to a head at this hustings. We have an absentee MP, and for me, the role of the MP in Bradford West is about being our voice in Parliament but he's never there, as he's too busy earning lords elsewhere. You claimed, and gullible journalists believed you, that you were subject to a forced marriage at the age of 15. But you were not 15. You were 16 and a half. I have your record. I have your record. Only... It didn't take long for the marriage certificate incident to spread on the internet, both sides accusing each other of lying. Police have confirmed they're investigating alleged smears on and offline. I need to interrupt this profile with a correction. I said brass eye, it's the day today. Noel Doyle, thank you so much for correcting me. And I would have hated for you to have looked up brass eye and said, this is nothing like Jeremy Paxman interviewing 
George Galloway after the 2005 election. Um, That personal campaign in Bradford West in 2015 wasn't effective for Galloway. Um, He lost and only scored 21% of the vote. Naz Shah got 50%. Um, So, obviously, the constituents there um, were more with her than him. And Galloway's electoral history is far from spotless. But with free election wins against Labour under his belt, it's not something to be dismissed. But does he deserve the support he periodically manages to command? Well, his critique of Labour's current policy in the Gaza war is valid, just as he was right about the Iraq war. But critics would argue that when it comes to human rights, George Galloway is far from consistent. Galloway worked for Russia Today until sanctions shut it down, and his commentary on the war um, in Ukraine has been fairly helpful for the Kremlin. In March 2022, he tweeted this, It is now clear that the US is about to stage a false flag weapons of mass destruction incident in Ukraine. Fasten your seatbelts, hashtag Russian army. And false flags were a theme in this April broadcast of his talk show. I don't believe that Buka was a war crime. I believe it belongs in the long line of false flag operations used to trigger war from the Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam in the 1960s, now absolutely revealed to have been a false flag operation, to the attack on the American warship, the Vincennes, in the uh, Mediterranean, to the false flag of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, to the false flag of uh, the Gaddafi forces being given Viagra and sent out to rape people in eastern Libya. I've heard too many of these uh, to believe them without evidence. Now, we agree on this show there have been enough false flags or at least misreporting of people and armies and nations who are opposed to the United States um, in terms of foreign policy. Um, So requiring evidence is fine. But Galloway said something there which also required evidence. He says he thinks this is a false flag. Now, uh, the the Buka massacre, I mean, there is a lot of evidence that it actually happened, right, (laughs) as we reported at the time. The evidence that it's a false flag is very weak. And if you're looking for an ulterior motive as to why he might be um, siding with the the people who say it's a false flag is because he was employed for a very long time by the Russian state, right? So he's not someone I would trust for neutral opinions on the war in Ukraine. And he was definitely putting forward um, a view there that Vladimir Putin would be very pleased with. Um, Galloway is also controversial for these comments about the rape allegations against Julian Assange. Even taken at its worst, if the allegations made by these two women were true, 100% true, and even if a camera in the room captured them, they don't constitute rape. At least not rape as anyone with any sense can possibly recognize it. And somebody has to say this. Let's take woman A. Woman A met Julian Assange, invited him back to her flat, gave him dinner, went to bed with him, had consensual sex with him, claims that she woke up to him having sex with her again, 
something which can happen, you know. I mean, not everybody needs to be asked prior to each insertion. Some people believe that when you go to bed with somebody, take off your clothes and have sex with them and then fall asleep, you're already in the sex game with them. Those comments were severely criticised by anti-rape campaigners and they led to the resignation of then-leader of the Respect Party, Salma Yacoub. She said this at the time, I've always admired George's anti-imperialist stances and I don't regret for a second standing side by side on those issues. But for me, to have to make a choice between that and standing up for the rights of women was a false choice. I thought it was blurring of something that didn't need to be blurred. It's not that complicated. You can hold two ideas at the same time. Salma Yacoub can hold two ideas at the same time and George Galloway is capable of putting out more than one leaflet. In his latest campaign in Rochdale, some people got this one. So it says to the voters of the Muslim faith in Rochdale, you've got I, George Galloway, have fought for Muslims at home and abroad all my life and paid a price for it. If Labour lose this by-election, Sir Keir Starmer could well be forced out as Labour leader. Sir Keir Starmer, a top supporter of Israel, out. And then he says, with your support... I mean, if God wills it, I will give the 200 remaining days of this parliament to the service of all the people in Rochdale as your MP. So very much focused on Gaza there. Um, Another letter he sent out. First and foremost, I believe in Britain. That's why I fought for Brexit and why I fought against Scottish independence. I believe in family. I am a father of six children, five of them still at school, and I don't like some of the things they are teaching our children. I believe in men and women. God created everything in pairs. Unlike the mainstream parties, I have no difficulty in defining what a woman is. He goes on to say, a man cannot become a woman just by declaring as such. And he says, I believe in law and order. There will be no grooming gangs on my watch, even if I have to arrest them. And then he ends, um, then talks about the local economy, fair enough. And then he ends by saying, make Rochdale great again. One leaflet there very much speaking to, I suppose you could could call them anti-woke talking points. Aaron, giving a little profile there of George Galloway, undeniably a great orator. He's had undeniably some correct positions when it comes to foreign policy. Also some ones which are more dubious and where it's quite easy, I think, to sort of impute cynical motives towards him. This sort of social conservatism that he sort of seems to have had fairly consistently, actually, throughout his career. How would you how would you judge the guy? Well, I think that's the first point that on foreign policy, on anti-imperialism, on Palestine, etc., that stuff, that's documented back to the 80s. And on the social conservatism stuff, you're, you're right as well. You, you can disagree with it. But the idea of a grifter is somebody who says things they don't believe. So these are two things that he fundamentally believes. That's somewhat distinct to the Assange and um, Naz Shah stuff. Because for me, it's quite extraordinary, really, to watch somebody with Hitchens speaking to US legislators who is in a class of their own when it comes to rhetoric, but then in a by-election disputing whether somebody was 15 or 16 and a half when they got married. I mean, legally that matters, but it just, there's a there's a grating there and it sort of shows, I think, what could have been. <clears throat> you know, he's a tremendous, he is a tremendously talented orator. I think if his ego had been kept in check, I think if we had proportional representation in this country with, a you know, the possibility of a, a larger left-wing party, he could have been a very successful political figure. In a way, not dissimilar to Farage, although I should say, he's been an MP since 1987. Nigel Farage has never been an MP. Uh, who gets more Who gets more attention in the media? Reform. They've had all this coverage in the media, all these millions of pounds spent. They've never won um, a parliamentary seat. George Galloway just did it. So, 
you know, I think for me, it boils down to this, which is on Iraq, he was 100% correct on the single biggest error of British foreign policy, and I include the Suez crisis, since the Second World War, easily. And he was almost not a lone voice, because of course, there were many dissenters in the Labour Party, including Jeremy Corbyn, Robin Cook. But I think to be so overtly, charismatically against something, you know, he was, he was pretty unique. I, I think that bought him lots of goodwill, and I think that should never be forgotten. It should never be forgotten, and it won't be forgotten. Uh, but this other stuff matters too, of course. The Assange comments, um, the, the Naz Shah comments, just bizarre in a way. Uh, but going to Rochdale, I don't really see much of a, firstly, a problem with quote-unquote micro-targeting. So forget what was in those two leaflets for one moment. Michael, every single party does this, Right. Every single party and all the pundits and the politicians saying otherwise on TV over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, either don't know what they're talking about and you shouldn't be listening to them because they're not, you know, informed or they're lying to you. You know, we saw in 2019, for instance, in Harrow, the Conservative Party micro-targeted British Indians in regards to a foreign policy issue, um, Labour's purported position on Kashmir. They did that with that particular subgroup of voters. Um, so the idea that, oh, this was invented by George Galloway, it's sectarian, it's divisive. Well, you can, you can think all of those things. I don't. Park that for a moment. But it's not new. And all the parties do it. Every single party will talk about certain wards, certain streets as these are our voters because of X, Y, Z characteristics. Isn't it funny? In 2008, 2012, Barack Obama wins with predictive modeling, um, with these voter profiles, which were done a whole new way, which allowed for micro-targeting digital messages, offline messages, uh, strategic messaging, you know, what, what are you talking about? Where, when, why? Everybody said, how clever. This has changed politics forever. Uh, when, when the Leave vote did something similar in 2016, because it was the other side, the exact same people who praised Obama were calling evil. And now, of course, Galloway is doing something similar, although in a far less, you know, technologically sophisticated way. We're, we're hearing similar things. So that's not new. It's very common. In terms of the content of the two letters, well, I, he's clearly not going to get rid of Keir Starmer, but it, I think everything he's saying in regards to Gaza, that he'll be a voice for Gaza over the next 200 days or whatever it may be, that's, that's accurate, that's correct. The things he said in the other leaflet, he, he does believe them. I disagree with many of the things he said, but he, he does believe those things. And the truth is there will be many voters who are allured by, well, not many voters, there'll be a significant number of voters who agree with both of those leaflets. So the idea that um, they will agree with one, but they're being misled because there's this completely other, you know, different candidate who's saying something different. I don't really buy it. You know, if you had a leaflet that was saying, I will defend Gaza, and then two other households, I will stand by Israel, then I, I get what you're talking about. Um, but this is somewhat different. George Galloway has never, never sold himself as a social liberal. And if, if he did, by the way, I, I, I'd agree with him on a lot more stuff. I do agree with him on the foreign policy stuff. And again, it goes back to sophistication within the electorate, Michael. Many people will have voted for Galloway yesterday and in Bradford West and in Burn Bethnal Green. They're not stupid. They'll say, well, I disagree with him on X, Y, Z issues. But on this one thing, which basically nobody else in British politics is talking about, I, I agree with him a lot. So yeah, put him in parliament. And also, this really does undo the, 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 the claim that he didn't really care about the local economy. You know, very politically astute to talk about Rochdale Football Club and how he would save the football club. It's a, it's a big part of the civic fabric of that uh, town, as football clubs invariably are, especially in smaller towns. 
places like Oldham, Rochdale, Bury. Of course, Bury lost their club a few years ago. I think he's back now. Um, they're a big part of, 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 of the social and, and political fabric of these places. And, and you know, he, he, he used that. Um, and, and, and I'll finish with this. What was the offer from Labour? What was it? Was Labour going to institute a four-day week and you know have universal childcare and uh, guaranteed social income and rent caps? No. Um, so if you think that well on all these issues, they'll broadly be the same. But I care about Rochdale Football Club. I care about actually Rochdale just being in the national spotlight for a few weeks or months. And I care about Gaza. I'll vote for Galloway. It doesn't mean you agree with absolutely everything he's saying. You know, and an adult knows that you talk to the electoral, you canvass. They will say that. Well, I don't agree with them on everything, but he's quite good. Well, she's quite good. Or I actually agree with her on many things, but on this, she's bad. So I'm not one of vote. It's a deal breaker for me. You know, that level of sophistication is out there. It exists, uh, but it's very rarely acknowledged within uh, political coverage in the media. Let's go on to our next story. We can ask what Mehdi Hassan thinks about George Galloway. Mehdi Hassan is a US-based journalist and broadcaster who knows how to do a killer interview. Most recently, those interviews were hosted on MSNBC, including a very punchy one with former Israeli ambassador Mark Regev. We analysed that on this show. But in somewhat mysterious circumstances, his show was taken off air. Well, you'll be pleased to hear he's back. What? You thought I was gone? Oh no, you can't get rid of me that easily. I'm back with a whole new media company, in fact. My own. We're calling it Zeteo, the ancient Greek word that goes back to Socrates and Plato, which means to seek out, to inquire, to get to the truth. And that is the guiding principle behind my new media venture. Zeteo will bring you hard-hitting interviews and unsparing analysis that you won't find elsewhere. Shows, podcasts, op-eds, newsletters, we have it all. And it's not just me. I've been busy a la Nick Fury assembling an Avengers-style team of contributors, the kind of big names from media, activism, and Hollywood that will blow your mind. And joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Mehdi Hassan. Thanks for having me, Michael. Firstly, can you tell us about this new platform? And can you explain the name to me. Where did you get Zeteo from? This comes from ancient Greece. It comes from the time of Plato and Socrates, and it refers to seeking out, inquiring, challenging, looking for the truth. And I thought that would be appropriate name for a new media organization in an era where the truth is hidden from us. We have a bunch of serial gaslighters and grifters and con men and liars, um, basically running the show on both sides of the Atlantic. And therefore, I thought the name was rather appropriate for what is a new media company, Michael. We're going to be doing a lot of things. We're going to be doing streaming shows. We're going to be doing podcasts. We're going to be doing video essays, op-eds, newsletters. Um, I've got to do the shameless plug. Folks can sign up at zeteonews.com, Z-E-T-E-O news.com. And I love saying it on here because in America, I have to say Z-E-T-E-O news.com. So at least I can remember how Z is supposed to be said. Um, but I'm inspired by you guys, actually, and many of you guys in the independent space who have done so well challenging, quote unquote, mainstream media, corporate owned media, getting other platforms out to voices we need to hear from. And so thank you to you guys at Navarra. Well, that's very, very meaningful. Thank you so much for saying that. Obviously, we've been big fans of your interviewing style. Um, we've been, in fact, sort of showing a bunch of your interviews and, and reacting to them. So I suppose 
My question for you, are you concerned, and we have the same sort of issues here, where there is, to some degree, a trade-off between freedom to say whatever you want and then access to people with power? Because obviously one of the great roles you've been able to have on MSNBC and on other mainstream platforms is that you can get Mark Regev or other Israeli officials to talk to you. Are you worried that sort of, you know, the people you give tougher interviews to, so the right-wingers or the the supporters of um, autocratic regimes, do you think they're going to be less likely to come on an independent media show than they were when it was mainstream? I wouldn't say I'm worried. Uh, I would say I acknowledge the risk and the challenge and the uncertainty. It will be very interesting to see what happens when we do our main launch. Because right now, Michael, just to be clear to your viewers in the UK in particular, we did a soft launch this week. So we kind of launched the site. Uh, We're going to be doing newsletters right now for everyone, free and paid. But come April, we're going to roll out actual shows. And most of that stuff will go behind a paywall for the paid subscribers. Um, And you're right, in come April, will we struggle to get guests? I hope to prove everyone wrong. But it's clearly a challenge. But I would say this to you, Michael, the challenge between access and freedom isn't just a kind of independent alternative platform issue. Uh, It's also an issue of uh, even when I was at MSNBC, even when I was at MSNBC, I was saying what I wanted to say. I was slightly more provocative, I think it's fair to say, than some of the other hosts on cable news. And there was an issue there. Would, would, Would not just Republicans, would Democrats, would establishment Democrats come on the show and get grilled by me? Because, you know, MSNBC tends not to uh, be a place where establishment Democrats are used to being grilled, I think it's fair to say. And as for right-wingers, none of them would come on MSNBC anyways because American cable news has become so partisan that people retreat to their, uh, you know, comfort zones. Um, So the challenge has always been there. It's clearly going to be bigger now I'm going it alone. Um, But by the way, I should be clear, I'm not actually going it alone. I'm launching now on my own. But the whole point of Zeteo and why I didn't call it the Mehdi Hassan Network, like the Tucker Carlson Network, is because it is a platform for more people than just me. We're going to roll out a list of pretty big name contributors, many of whom your uh, viewers and listeners will know. We're going to be rolling them out in April. So it is me and a team of people contributing. And I hope between us, we'll get some great guests and great people and great contacts. But look, you look at people like I'm not a fan of his, but Joe Rogan, I'm not a fan of his, but Ben Shapiro, people who have made uh, their names in the independent space, they get sometimes bigger guests than quote unquote corporate media. So I think people will go where the audience is, where the challenge is. A lot of right wingers like to have an argument. And you know me, I like to have an argument. I wrote a book about winning arguments, uh, another shameless plug, which is out in paperback this week. So I hope the arguments continue, but you're right. It is going to be an interesting challenge to see what the people in power do. I presume you'll be covering a lot on the American elections this year, inevitably. Um, Tell me about that. I mean, obviously, at the moment, there's a big debate about Joe Biden and Gaza. You've got these two you know, deeply problematic options. On the one side, you've got Donald Trump. Yes. On the other side, you've got Joe Biden, who's been very, very supportive of Israel. I would say unconditionally supportive of Israel in their yes. genocidal war on Gaza. How are you going to approach that? So this is one of the big editorial challenges for Zateo because we want to have as broad a presence as possible on the center-left, far-left, left, liberal, progressive part of the spectrum. And I've been someone who, throughout my career, Uh, has been very careful to try and keep all lines of communication open to different parts uh, of the progressive wings of American and British politics. I worked at Al Jazeera English, as you know, which has a different editorial bent, to The Intercept, which has a very different editorial bent to MSNBC. And along the way, I, I appreciate the fact that I've picked up a lot of followers and viewers and readers 
who are from different parts of the left. So, for example, right now, I know that the, we've had thousands and thousands of subscribers in the first couple of days of the launch of Zeteo. And I know that many of them will be blue no matter who, Biden Democrats who are rightly concerned about the return of Donald Trump. But I know there's also going to be a lot of people in there who are maybe the Michigan uncommitted folks who are we cannot vote for Joe Biden. He's complicit in a genocide. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. And I, don't, I, I can't pretend to you that I have the answer right now. It'll be interesting to see how we navigate that and how we do content which is truthful, which is um, principled, which is morally consistent, uh, but which will be playing to different audiences on the left. But the left, as you know, Michael, you've been doing this in the independent space longer than me. It's very different to the right. The right is much more monolithic. You can, you can argue about Trump versus never Trump, Nikki Haley. But in terms of demographics, in terms of what gets them worked up, wokeism, culture wars, it's pretty easy for the Ben Shapiros and Barry Weisses and Tucker Carlson's to dish up red meat content that gets them easy subscribers. I think on the left, it's going to be much more of a challenge covering America in particular in an election year, where, as I say, people are rightly concerned that in a two-party choice, you've got to reject Donald Trump, the fascist. But in a two-party choice, can you really bring yourself to vote for either of them, given what Joe Biden is unconditionally doing on behalf of genocidal Israeli government, as you say. And concretely on the Gaza issue, I want to know where you sort of stand in your opinions on this, because I know some experts, so Rashid Khalidi, um, among them, one of the very sort of high profile experts on, yes. on the Palestine issue, has said that he believes that Biden has been even worse than Trump when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Where do you sort of stand on that question? It's... <laughs> This is one of the thorniest questions of our time when it comes to the left, Biden, Trump, and Gaza. Look, all right, this is, a, this is a careful one to navigate because this is not some abstract issue, is it, Michael? There are people who are really hurting. There are people here in America, Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, who say, we cannot vote for Joe Biden. We've lost not 10, not 20, not 30, 40, 50, 60 members of our family in Gaza. And of course, how could anyone say to that person, you should vote like this? That's just a given. What Biden has done is unprecedented in the sense of what Israel has done is unprecedented and America has backed it. So in that sense, what he's done is unprecedented. Again, unfortunately, we live in a two-party system. and We have to understand that if it's not Biden, then it's Trump. It's not If it's not Biden, it's Cornell West or Marianne Williamson. If it's not Biden, it's Donald Trump. And I, I would like, you know, I've met people who claim, and I believe wrongly claim, that if Donald Trump was president, things wouldn't be as bad right now. That's nonsense. You don't have to normalize or minimize Donald Trump's awfulness in order to criticize Joe Biden. I can say very happily that Joe Biden is complicit in an awful genocide. And in a perfect world, he would be politically punished because we have many more choices. But the reality is Donald Trump as president of the United States was horrifically pro-Israel. In fact, you could argue as Rashid Khalid that Biden is the most pro-Israeli president of our lifetimes. But guess who the most pro-Israeli president before Joe Biden was? Donald Trump. Right, Donald Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Donald Trump, Donald Trump has a settlement. Many people don't know this. In the Golan Heights in occupied Syria, named after him. Right? Donald Trump is the only American president who has an illegal settlement named after him. That's how much the far right in Israel love him. In fact, you'd have to take my word for it. Itamar Ben-Gavir, perhaps the worst member of Netanyahu's government, who this week was celebrating the flower massacre in northern Gaza. He has said on the record, that if Donald Trump was in office, we would have much more freedom to do what we want to do. Those are not my words. Those are Ben Gavir's words. So when I say Donald Trump would be worse for the Palestinians than even Joe Biden, I'm not just saying that as a kind of opinion. I'm saying that's what the Israelis believe. Now, and, and, and this is what I say to people. Nobody's telling you to vote for Joe Biden. I wouldn't tell people how to vote. 
What I would say is bear in mind the fact that Netanyahu and Ben Gavir are waiting for a Trump presidency. There's no debate about that. So that's an important point to bear in mind. I get it. People are hurting. People are furious at Joe Biden. But the alternative is Donald Trump or, or Nikki Haley. Let's say Donald Trump falls under a bus tomorrow, has a heart attack, disappears from the planet Earth, pulls out of the race, whatever it is. Nikki Haley is the Republican alternative to Joe Biden. She has said, finish the job. Get the people out of Gaza. She has come out for ethnic cleansing, which even Joe Biden, for all his sins on this issue, has not. So it's a really tricky one, Michael, because now if you clip this, people will say, oh, Mehdi Hassan saying Biden's not that bad. Vote. No, I'm saying Biden is awful on Gaza. I'm just saying the fact that he's awful on Gaza doesn't mean that Trump wouldn't be much worse. I want to bring your attention back to the UK, obviously where you cut your teeth. Um, George Galloway has just been elected in the Rochdale by-election, the third time he has campaigned against yeah. Labour and won. Of course, he has campaigned against Labour and, and not won a few times as well. Um, yes. he's, he's, principally, he, he's principally run this campaign on, on that issue of, of Gaza. I wanted to know your, your thoughts on George Galloway, if you ever sort of came across him um, in your time as a political journalist in the UK. So a couple of things. One is my understanding, and obviously I'm not as uh, uh, connected to this issue as you are, but just from following on social media, my understanding is that Galloway did run a very Gaza-focused campaign. But I did see that he was doing that clever thing where he was targeting different constituencies, different groups in different ways, which all politicians do, to be fair, uh, where he's putting out kind of um, quite right-wing letters about gender wars and gender identity and trust me on this issue and playing to people's kind of reactionary impulses, but he's also putting out letters to Muslim community with Assalamu alaikum and stand for the Muslim Ummah in Gaza. Uh, you know, George Galloway is a deeply cynical figure. He has been around on the scene for many, many years. Um, I think he's gotten worse over the years. He's not a big fan of mine. I'm not a big fan of his. I wrote a piece for The Guardian, Michael, years ago when he was running in, was it Bradford West? I can't remember which Bradford constituency. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, look, British Muslims cannot be a one issue community, right? We care about foreign policy. We also have to care about domestic policy. Now that does ring a little bit hollow today when what's happening in Gaza is way more than just a foreign policy issue. It is obviously a plausible genocide to quote the International Court of Justice and both British political mainstream parties have done such a bad job on Gaza. But of course it opens uh, you know, the way for someone like Galloway. And I don't blame anyone uh, in Rochdale who voted for Galloway because they're angry at the main parties. It's totally understandable. Galloway winning is the fault of the main parties for not being able to take a principled, engaged stance on the biggest moral policy issue of our time. Uh, I mean, I go back years with Galloway. I, I, have a I don't know if I've ever told the story, but many years ago, I was a young researcher at ITV News. I was about, I think this was January 2022, I want to say. It was when Guantanamo Bay was opened up, Michael. You were probably in mm. primary school. Um, and So 2002. Uh, I was a 20... Sorry? 2002. I think you said 2022. 2002. Yeah, or you 2002, were 22. January 2002. That's how old I am. I can't even think of the date. Go back that far. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was a 23-year-old researcher at uh, Jonathan Dimbleby show at LWT, the Sunday show. And we had a debate between George Galloway and Andrew Neal on Guantanamo. And I remember booking Galloway, and I was a big fan, young lefty. George Galloway, yeah. Let's get him on. He was such a great debater. He is a great debater. And some audience member accused him of taking money from Saddam Hussein. And he went nuts. And then he blamed me and said, I'd set him up with the audience member. I'm this young researcher. And he's calling me out on set in front of like my bosses and Jonathan Dimbleby. And then he threatens to sue LW. We get the classic legal letter from Galloway. I don't think went anywhere at the time. I mean, I didn't get fired. Um, but that's my earliest professional memory of dealing with George Galloway. 
Um, but, you know, one, on a serious point, you look at something, a lot of the people on the Palestine issue, Michael, not a lot, okay, a section of the left on the Palestine issue is very strong, eloquently, rhetorically on Palestine, and Galloway is one of them. My problem is I want people to be consistent on human rights, not just on the right, but on the left. And in the, when it came to the Syria conflict, for example, I think Galloway was on the wrong side in terms of supporting what Assad was doing. And don't forget, Assad starved and killed a lot of Palestinians in places like Yarmouk, the refugee camp in Syria. And some of us have longer memories. So we remember that and say, well, hold on, you're now very pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab. What about when Assad was killing tens of thousands of people? Let's talk more generally about UK politics. So you've got your general election coming up in the United States. We've got ours. We don't quite know when it's going to be, but it's supposed to be this year. It could be um, next January. How do you see that going? I and mean, what's your views, for example, on, on Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party? Keir Starmer. Wow. I wanted, to, I wanted to be positive about Keir Starmer, but everything I see, and maybe this is, you know, I'm a far away. I'm seeing a lot of it online. It's bad. Like, not just Gaza bad, but bad across the board, bad on the environment. Like the, the, I'm someone who's very critical of Tony Blair, Michael. I, I've spent much of my career cr criticizing, opposing what Tony Blair did as prime minister and labor leader. And yet when I was, let's go back further than 2002, in 1997, I was 17 years old. I missed out on the May election um, by a few months, wasn't able to vote, and I wanted to vote Labour in that landslide. I was very excited about Tony Blair. I hated the Tories. And I was a fan of what, you know, Labour coming in and, you know, people move to the right as they get older. I feel like I moved to the left. I was quite, I was more right wing when I was a teenager. I was more centrist. Um, and Blair disappointed us, right, on the domestic front, but also obviously Iraq, post 9-11, horrific crimes. But when you compare Starmer now to Blair then, Blair offered a far more radical, ambitious agenda. And it wasn't that radical ambitious. It was that one little pledge card. And did more radical, ambitious things like healthcare spending, which he and Brown did increase. And Starmer seems to want to do at a moment where Starmer seems to have a much easier path to victory than even Blair had. So I find the lack of ambition, the cautiousness, the centrism, the playing to the right-wing gallery, the disowning of any left-wing views he pretended to have when he ran for leader or served under Corbyn. I find that, in a way, worse than Blair in 97. And Owen Jones, our good friend, made this point yesterday on social media. He's going to win, but he's not going to win with any enthusiasm. And he hasn't really got a mandate for any kind of major change that he needs to do in the UK. Melia Sam, thank you for joining me. We'll put a link to Zateo in the description of this show. People do. Please check it out. I'm sure you don't need my persuasion, though. Let's go to our final story. Next week, the Tories will present perhaps their final budget. It's their last pitch to voters before the next election, so we might expect tax cuts. And they've also floated scrapping the non-DOM tax status for super-rich foreigners. And on BBC Question Time, Labour's David Lammy gave his predictions. In the run-up to a budget, what the Tories will do is fly a kite about a whole range of policies try and excite their base to see if something will go down. None of us know what's in the budget until we get there. But we do know that there's been a debate in the Conservative Party about tax cuts. Um, uh, and that debate has now rumbled on for several years. At the same time, people are really fe feeling the squeeze. But the only way out of this is growth in our economy. And we have been in recession under them. So this is on them. And what the British people now need, frankly, is a general election. 
We need... So should I assume need, then that we, we wouldn't be seeing tax cuts under a Labour government should you get in? I've been around a long enough time to tell you that I'm not here as the, as the shadow chances expect to start predicting what is in... Well, I'd love to... Caroline, are you really going to start telling us what... What your plan is on the budget? I can certainly tell you, David, that the Green Party would not be proposing tax cuts at a time when public services oh. are absolutely decimated, I when hospitals have huge, huge waiting lists, when schools are literally crumbling, when universities can't cope because they can't manage to manage their, their, their books. I can absolutely tell you that the Green Party would be prioritising investment in vastly needed public services, not cutting taxes. And um, are you going to suggest where the money's going to come from to do that? I would love to, David. I would love to challenge you on why the Labour Party oh, has I mean, moved away from a wealth tax. A wealth tax is one of the things you, you that in many you, other countries, right. they, they pursue that oh. and they look at the tax burden. That, well, I shouldn't call it a burden. It's the, the responsibility of paying tax. And they recognise that some of the richest people in our society do not pay a proportionate amount of tax relative to the amount of money that they have, not just in their income, but in terms of their assets. So why is the discussion of a wealth tax such a taboo in this country? They have a wealth tax in Switzerland, in, in, in Norway, in lots of other countries where it's not brought the sky falling down. We should have a proper discussion about where the money comes from to invest. And one of the ways it can come from is from people who have more and earn more. It's a very good answer. It's a very patronising question. It's like, how are you going to pay for it? You know, as if sort of like there's the idea of taxing the rich is just, you know, beyond the comprehension of Caroline Lucas. She's like, well, how will we pay for it? We'll, we'll, we'll do a wealth tax. It's like, oh. Like it's, he asked the question as if he sort of assumed there would be no answer to it. Aaron, what did you make of that exchange? I thought it was completely bizarre, um, not least because he's saying, how would you pay for it? You know, Keir Starmer in 2020 was saying, how you pay for it? You know, it's as if, you know, you're trying to defy the laws of gravity. How would you raise the tax? We tax in this country capital less than work. We tax wealth less than work. If you buy a house and, you know, two years later, it's gained £100,000 in value and you sell it, it's probably made, well, it's definitely made more than the average person would have earned working for those two years, and we're going to tax the capital gain on that property less than we're going to tax that person's wealth, um, than their work rather. Crazy, right? So the first thing you do, I think, is equalize capital gains and income tax, broadly speaking. Um, I spoke about this, by the way, not so long ago in a TED talk. And what was interesting for me, Michael, was speaking to very wealthy people. They were like, yeah, it is, it is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Because of course, if you're very wealthy and you've got everything you want, um, and it's not being taxed, and you keep on getting richer and richer. What do you do with the money? Well, you've got nothing else to do. You know, you can only have so many houses, so many yachts, so many nice Brioni suits. You invest it in assets to make you more money. The assets invariably are a form of rent. Could be property. Um, it could be investing in privatized healthcare or whatever, and that generates more and more revenues. You have more money. You invest in more assets. So it's like an Ouroboros, you know, the snake eating its own tail, which is almost a machine for income inequality, regional inequality, political volatility, low innovation, low productivity. So obvious. So what you need to do is, and a small c conservative position on this, Michael, by the way, is just to bump up capital gains by a couple of percent. Doesn't even need to be, this is a, I think this is a center-right position. If you're just saying, well, look, we need to basically 
um, improve the public realm in this country like 20%. We need high-speed rail so people can go to work on time so that businesses can flourish outside M25. Uh, we need to invest clearly in local government because we've cut their budgets by 50% since 2010. How are we going to do that? We'll probably, okay, let's, let's tax capital gains slightly more. That should be the center-right position. Uh, but you've got a nominally Labour uh, politician there sort of poo-pooing it as if it's saying that I, I want to resurrect the dead and have uh, a Sunday roast with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, this is a very reasonable policy uh, that is being delegitimized by the Labour Party precisely because they're in hocks of very powerful interests who don't want them to do it. And I do not buy this idea that, oh, well, if we introduce a... If we increase capital gains, then actually that means we're going to lose our Tory switches because I think, for instance, VAT is too high. Um, I think we should have had a VAT cut in this country like the Germans did to deal with the cost of living crisis. I think many small businesses would have been saved. Many jobs uh, would have been kept had we done that. Um, and what I'd say is I want tax to go up in some places and down in some others. I don't think we should be taxing working people through consumption like we do, I do think we should be increasing the taxes on wealth for the very rich. And people then say, well, the, it's easy to talk about the very rich. Where are they? Where are they? It's just you know this abstraction you're talking about. Last year, the managing director of Harrods said, the rich get richer in a recession. Recessions are good for the rich. Our sales and our revenues are doing phenomenally well. Until recently, the largest company by market capitalization, maybe it's gone back to that position actually, the largest company in Europe by market capitalization is not a big tech firm. It wasn't, you know, uh, even petrochemicals, right? It was LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, luxury goods. Very many wealthy people have lots of cash to spend on this stuff. We know that because it's literally one of the two biggest companies in Europe. Uh, so there is money out there. It can be taxed. and. Just as we saw the Overton window on political debate shift left over the last five to 10 years, really, uh, Labour in government would seek to shift it right. They would seek to shift it right. This is not me disliking Labour. It's just a fact. You're seeing it here in real time. David Lammy is saying, we can't increase any taxes on the rich. And by the way, I think just to keep this ship afloat, just to stay where we are, you're going to have to increase taxes because of an aging population, because of crises in, in the higher education sector, and because of local government bailouts. My God, Michael, look at Birmingham. They're going to have to uh, sell a billion pounds worth of assets. They're going to have to lay off 600 people. They're going to have to increase council tax by 21%. All these things, uh, because of this massive payout they're having to make, because of historical injustice with regards to various parts of the, uh, their employees, dozens of other councils could be in the same situation. So the idea that Oh, we can't have tax rises. We're having tax rises. A 21% council tax rise is a tax rise. And it's just a complete, um, I think, uh, lack of responsibility to sort of have this debate and say, well, we'd like to ta cut taxes. It's one thing to say in an economic downturn, we don't want to increase taxes. I wouldn't agree with that entirely. Like I say, I think capital gains, you could do that. It's one thing to say that. That's a Keynesian position, by the way. Uh, it's another thing to say we would look to cut taxes. We'd like to cut taxes. Uh, that's, you know, that is a deficit-funded tax cuts is a trust position. Lamy's not saying that, uh, but he's one away from, you know, George W. Bush or Liz Trust, deficit-funded tax cuts. That's not a left-wing position. And it's basically buying, it's not basically, there's no basically about it. It is buying into austerity because the key presumption here, which nobody talks about really, is that the growth on which Blairism was built 
was extraordinary. It was a historical one-off for a bunch of reasons which we can't go into today. And it's not going to be repeated. We have to build millions of homes. We have to build a national care service. You might say we have to increase military spending. I wouldn't really agree with that, given how bad procurement is. We've got to transition our energy systems. Uh, and we've got to bail out you know, 101 sectors. This is going to cost a lot of money. And finally, Angela Rayner was in a conference today about the future of the North. Labour won't even commit to finishing HS2, Michael. You know, they could say, it'll be on ice. We want to cut costs, but we'd absolutely want high-speed rail to go from Manchester to Birmingham, from Birmingham to, to Leeds, maybe even to Bradford. They could say that. They don't. Because what they want, what their policies consist in, is getting their feet under the table, saying we're nice, virtuous, good people, and we're 0.5% or 0.5 degrees further left than the Tories. Those are their political commitments. And if you think otherwise, I'm afraid you're going to be very badly disappointed because at least with Tony Blair, he had Gordon Brown, he had Robin Cook, he had John Prescott, he had Mo Molum, he had really big left-wing figures in his shadow cabinet. Labour, you could say maybe, maybe Angela Rayner, that's it. Uh, it certainly doesn't look good. Talking of taxing the rich, um, you've got an interview out this Sunday, haven't you? Gary Stevenson. Uh, what can people look forward to? Well, it's a real scoop for Navarro, Michael, because Gary has been doing you know, 101 interviews with The Telegraph, The Times. I think his, his new book, his forthcoming book, was reviewed by the FT, I think, today. Probably going to be in their weekend supplement. Um, it's a great book. It's a personal story. Uh, which you probably would have an inkling about if you saw my last interview with him, which is on our YouTube channel with Gary Stevenson. Doing very well, coming up for a million views. We want this one to do better, Michael. It's about how the British economy will only get worse forever with our present economic model. And that's not just rhetoric. He talks about how that operates, how it functions. And remember this, about 15, 16 months ago, Gary said to me that we wouldn't see a major um, downturn in property prices in the UK. We wouldn't see a major downturn in property prices in the UK. And actually, they would slightly edge down, but then eventually start to rally. That's exactly what we're seeing. Um, so if nothing else, if you don't agree with his political commitments, if you want some sensible insights around the economy, Gary's your guy. I can't wait. Um, thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. That interview will be premiering, premiering, quite a hard word to say that, here on our channel at 6pm on Sunday. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. Come back on Monday night for another live stream. Um, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.